Hey, uh, this is Brian. Before the show starts, um, and this is a big one because it's John Bon Jovi coming up. And uh, this is the first podcast interview John has ever done that was um, intended to be a podcast. We talked for an hour and there were no holds barred. And he answered every question with incredible uh, clarity and truth and humor and wit and all the things that you expect if you've listened to his music all these years, as I have. Um, if you are a listener to the podcast, uh, and, and I want to say, um, I've been so touched, blown away, really, by the emails I've gotten since we relaunched this show. Between all the stuff that um, I do, between making our TV show Billions and like living life, it's hard for me to prepare to do the podcast. And the reason I do it is because of the feedback that I get. It's a really direct thing. And the fact that there's this community of people who are all growing together and learning together and getting the best out of ourselves um, and using these conversations as some kind of fuel for it. I, I can't tell you how many notes I get where someone says, uh, listening to a conversation that I've had um, with someone here has made them examine where they are, figure out where they want to go, and then find a way to get there. And every time I get an email like that, I'm just blown away. I had no idea that this would become that kind of thing. But if the podcast is something that you dig, it would mean a lot to me if you would share it. Share it on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, in case you don't know what social media is, and um, rate it in the iTunes store. But even more than that, tell one person. Tell some friend of yours or someone who you know loves podcasts but is not listening to this show to listen to the show. I really want to continue to grow and deepen the conversations that we're having and to get more and more people to be a part of it. So. Uh, if you can do that part for me, I can keep doing this part for all of us. So thanks. And coming up, John Bon Jovi. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a big deal. I'm not going to pretend it's not a big deal here on The Moment. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member John Bon Jovi is here. Newly elected to the Hall of Fame, but it took way, way too fucking long. And... um Obviously, John is one of the most successful uh, musicians of my lifetime, also an accomplished actor, an activist, a businessman, and uh, John, really happy. And thanks this is his first podcast. So it is my first here. podcast, and my first introduction is Hall of Famer. That's great. Really? It's the yeah. first time you've first heard time. it? <laughs> yeah. Other than I, when I come down the stairs in the morning and I make all of my children say it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. They, they always say you're a good dad. Hall so of Fame dad. Uh, that's fantastic, Thank man. You. Well, congrats. I know it meant, Thank you. uh, meant and means a lot to you. It and, does. But I want to start at the beginning. Um, and we'll get to the Hall of Fame. Okay. Because, you know, um, I really remember buying the WAPP compilation album because I'd heard Runaway on, on APP. And it was such an incredible accomplishment because, you know, you wrote this amazing song, uh, a char the character singing the song, it's so similar to the guy that you were on your first bunch of records, the mm. stories, was. You got this incredible band. But can you start with like who you were and where you were when you wrote that song? And then how you got all those guys to play on it and got the al on the album and like rode that thing to a career? Because so many people who listen to this show are people who are right before they make that kind of a breakthrough. And Is it? Yeah, you weren't, a, you know, you were just a kid from New Jersey. Absolutely. So can you, can you talk about where yeah. you were in your life and Thank how you. you did it? Sure. Um, Interesting, uh, I mean, from my perspective, and you can remember at that time, first of all, the drinking age was 18, which was very important to the story because that meant that you could be 16 or 17 and sneak into a bar and be able to perform. This is integral to my story. Had I had to be 21, chances are my life could have ended up differently. Not having had the chance to cut my teeth in the, the bar circuit when I didn't have responsibility. So that is integral. Um, at that point, 16, 17, 18, I was absolutely only playing other people's songs because that's how anyone learns, you know, the Beatles and the Stones. Anybody learn by playing other people's stuff. And one night I was at the, the Fast Lane, which is no longer even there in Asbury Park. And that was my high school. That was my college. That was where I would play every week. And um, we were opening for someone, and that someone came back and he... He said, hey, Johnny, you know, you're pretty good, but uh, I think you should be more like my band. And, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I am the Muppets version of 
Southside Johnny, and you're the Muppets version of something that I don't want to grow up to have to be. And I said, and there and then on the spot, I quit my own cover band and went and became the lead singer of someone else's original band called The Rest. And you were se- you were like 17 then? I was 18. I just turned 18. It was I literally the month of my 18th birthday. And when you said you didn't have any responsibilities, were you in high school or had you bailed on high no, school? No, no, no. I never quit high school. But right. I, I was th- three months away from graduating high school. I was playing in the bar at least once a week, probably twice a week at that point. I had a big 10-piece band, and we truly were like the baby Muppet version of Southside Johnny. So you're playing I Don't Want to Go Home. All and the great, you know, this all the time great is for real and all that kind of stuff. Five-piece horn section. Uh, the 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 satin jackets that you bought from the the you know like the whatever that store was called in the mall merry go round um, the whole thing so I quit my own band because there was two kinds of uh, of bar opportunities on the shore nine cover bar bands and one original band so in that original bar band um, I was able to um, join someone else's just as their lead singer. You know, it was sort of the equivalent of being Robin Zander. Right. That's know? great. Yeah, because Rick Nielsen wrote all the songs. Yeah. And so I did that. And I, because I, I knew, and the bottom line and the point of the conversation is that without writing your own songs, it was a dead end street. No matter how popular a cover band was, you weren't going to go anywhere. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Southside because, right, the big difference, I mean, there are many differences, but Southside never wrote those songs. You know, right. Stevie had to write the songs for Southside. Yeah, and then John evolved, yeah, but agreed. And in, in, in the in the formative years, in their early records, they were definitely Steve's and, and Bruce's songs. John was not a writer whatsoever. But I quit even playing those songs in order to be in a truly original pop rock band as a, a lead singer of a band called The Rest. And a guy named Jack Ponte wrote all the songs. I was just his hired gun for six months. But that uh, that didn't last very long. And, and Johnny produced some demos. Billy Squire produced some demos, which was amazing because I was 18 years old. So right away, you got those people to, to notice that there was something. So did that give you, when you had like someone like Squire interested, did, did that give you a sense that you weren't nuts to think you could do this? Or did you I was have just confidence? a hired gun. I was just the singer in this guy's band. You know, they had to have seen something in the hole, but it weren't they weren't my songs. Um, when people had come to see the Atlantic City Expressway, same kind of vibe. You know, yes, they said the kid's pretty good, but there was nothing you know left to say other than that young boy. Um, so in the in the rest, I was just a kid that was learning how to front a band and could you know maybe carry a tune, but it wasn't mine, and they weren't my songs. How many nights a week were you guys playing? Do you oh think? no, no more than a couple because again. Playing original songs only gave you the opportunity to play for one hour, maximum twice a week, because cover bands were how the bars made the money and where the people came to see them. So I quit that too in September of 1980 and was pushing a broom here in the studio and started forming only my own bands. That's when you got the job from a guy who was distantly related to you working at the recording studio at night and then using the... Yep, studio, studio whenever said you night. Yep, yep, yep. And, and, and I did had you my decide to learn your craft? Like, was it a conscious Definitely. thing? Hey, I have to learn how to write songs? That's all it was. I was going to school. This second cousin of mine, who I hadn't known prior, he came to see the rest, and he said the same thing that most other people said. The band aren't very good, but the kids got something. And he said, if I can ever help you. And hung up, you know, that was it. He walked out of the show, and that was the end of it. I never met him before. Same last name. He's my father's cousin. I just never met the guy. So I was able, fortunately, to call him in September of that year after I graduated high school and said, hi, you know, can I come and just learn, watch, do, be? And he said, sure, uh, you know, 50 bucks a week, come and push a broom. And it was very kind because in the meantime, I'd play the bars. I'd get guys to play with me whenever I could because you couldn't pay them and would continue to learn the craft of writing songs. Yeah. And... uh and then how did the opportunity, were you, where were you playing out at that time, or were you not when you were oh, yeah. woodshedding that band? Uh, oh, the, the teeniest um, shot in beer bars in Sayreville to back at, the Fast Lane was my home. The Fountain Casino, um, a place called Buddy's back in Sayreville. You know, wherever they would allow original music to play. And when you were, when you were doing that, uh, had you made the decision, this is going to be my career, like in your own oh, head? Yeah, that was made way before then. It was. Oh, That's sure. That's what you were going to be. That was it. You know, I'd walk into high school every morning because, you know, I could care less. 
uh, in sunglasses and sit there and go, this doesn't matter for me because I'm going to make records someday. <laughs> someday I'm going to do a podcast with Brian Kaufman and talk about the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. Wait, but when, you're, when your grades would come. Yeah, dude. Oh, terrible. What would happen? Horrible. There was um, one announcement over the speakers in my senior year, and if you heard your name, you weren't graduating. And I was sweating bullets because I didn't deserve to pass British literature. And she didn't call my name, so I went in there to say thank you. And the lady's head practically popped off her shoulder. She was like, get out, just leave, don't come back, see ya. (laughs) Really? I ran out of there. But I graduated, yeah. And And did your parents believe in this, like... Did they believe in this vision? I have to say that God bless them. They did. They did as in as much as I said the story over and over. You know, they said if you're going to be in a bar till three in the morning, at least we know where you are. And so they supported it. Yeah. But you felt they real? Did you see fear in their eyes? Because now, as a parent, I know you could support the thing, right? But there could be fear. You know. I I don't know because of the success that you and I have. If our kids came up to us and said they were going to pursue the arts, we would be, of course, understanding of it, right? Yeah, right. It's a, it's a different world because we were Martians to our parents. It was well, your dad. Well, my was dad was it, successful, yeah. but but my so dad he... was a hairdresser. You know, my mother was a florist. So, but I was. That's why I'm underlining the fact that I was so young. I didn't have responsibility. You know, and and back when I was 16, 17, 18, I didn't know anyone who went to college. You worked in the factory. You went to the service. That's what we did. And my three best friends joined the Navy. I hung up on the guy and teased him about the clothes. And the the other three said yes. And they all joined the Navy. Right. So that's where you were. And uh, how did you come to write? How did you come to write Runaway, and how did you yeah. then get on that record and begin this Oh, career? this is where the, the, the difference maker was, is that as I was writing and trying to figure it out and watching other guys do it, um, I was pushing the broom in the city, and one of the things that I observed walking from the Port Authority up to 53rd Street was the kids that weren't as lucky to have a second cousin in the business, and those were the kids that were working the street in front of the Greyhound station. And I used to think about, you know, New York was a different place in 1980, 81, 82. If you remember the tunnel, it was a busy area, you know. Yeah, when he's saying work in the streets, he's talking about people turning tricks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're young prostitutes, boys and girls. And, uh, you know, you'd walk through that past Covenant House and up to 53rd Street, you know, and I'd be thinking, you know, there by that grace of God go I, you know. And fortunately enough, um, I was up there pushing a broom. So the idea came. And, and I started to, you know, just put words to, as I was for a couple of years at that point. But At that time, were you always telling these narrative songs? Because if you take the lyrics of your, uh, many of the songs in your first couple of albums, you were telling, you were telling these almost country song well, stories. In stories. Stories. I was more influenced by the storyteller than I was by the ethereal lyricist, you know, talking about the stairway to heaven. I, I was not a big, you know progressive rock or zeppelin kind of lyric you know kind of the the angels came down from that i wanted to talk about where it was that i was because of the people that i grew up listening to like they, yeah they two were the storyteller well, plus you weren't li- you weren't reading the british literature so you missed lord of the rings that's true <laughs> so if you'd gotten blew it that, off blew it off then yeah. you would have gotten the whole <laughs> fantasy thing blew it off like robert plant half yeah. the songs are just from that uh, was it Only lord of the rings he went to school i didn't know but but who, so who were you listening to? Who were those people you were listening to? Well, I was a byproduct of the latter 70s hard rock scene, sure. You know, um, that was all around you. But also then, then what made the impossible possible was all of those guys on the Jersey Shore who were playing their own songs. So whether it was Bruce or, or Southside, and, you know, in essence, um, both of them and their successes whether it was you 2 or Tom Waits or Elvis Costello or anything from the period of 79, 80, 81, 82 came through Asbury Park. If I didn't open for him, I saw them. You know, so all of the formative years of the biggest names that we know now were playing those bars. And were you, when you were playing out, what was your act, what was your band called when you wrote that song and uh, were playing and got on that homegrown album? Probably uh, John Bon Jovi and the Wild Ones from a Tom Petty song. Right, called the Wild Ones. So that was the first. That was the band then. That was and had band. you played that song out? And did you know? Yeah. Oh, I finally. When you wrote it, did you yeah. know I wrote one? No, 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 no. Uh, I liked it a lot, and uh, I was lucky enough to be able to cut that one with 
real, real guys. Yeah, I've always wanted to know this. How'd you get Roy Bitten and uh, Tim Pierce, who's one of the great guitar players? Played who, with Springfield at the time. Yeah, how'd yeah. you get those guys to play on your record, um, on your song? Well, with Roy, of course, you know, the, the, the E Street guys had always been around the clubs. So the first time, you know, Bruce jumped on stage with me, I was still in high school. Um, Johnny had produced demos. So a variety of the Jukes and the E Street Band had always seen me, always, well, had seen me play before. Um, so when I was in the, the power station, um, the, Tony, my cousin, and Lance Quinn, who produced the first Ramones record, the first Talking Heads record, I mean, these guys were no schlubs. They were real guys. Um, they, they asked favors and... I hit it off like with Frankie LaRocca, who's now lo no longer with us, but played drums um, well with Brian Adams and, and others, um, John Waite and several cats. Tim Pierce was playing on a John Waite record. So I was the kid that was, you know, bounding around the studio and befriending these other guys who were side musicians. And I said, hey, man, would you do me a favor on Saturday? Hey, man, would you do me a favor on Saturday? And Roy was the only one that I had a relationship with. And the credibility, I guess, of the power station and Tony and Lance, you know, had these. And Huey, my bass player, was the bass player. Who came back now? Who's yeah. your bass player now? Yeah, who's the bass player? So, you know, that was the band. And so I asked Frankie, I asked Tim, Roy, I knew, Huey, we knew through, you know, Lance and Tony. And we cut that song and some others. And, and then, then that, that song sat on the desk. So I sipped it What out. do you mean? Back in the day, you would send out cassette tapes if you didn't have somebody to go and you know lawyers and what have you i didn't have a lawyer i didn't have a manager i didn't have a band i was between paying guys 50 bucks you know if we could and i meant 50 bucks between us um to play on that weekend if i could get a 50 dollar gig um i i was sending the cassette out to anyone and everyone managers record companies a and r people no response from anyone but it was the creative thought that i had to go out to WAPP, which was just through the Midtown Tunnel. It wasn't actually in New York City. And and thank God, they were so new when I had this idea, they didn't have a receptionist. So you could walk in to a front door back in those days, and this was 1982, um, and I walked in the door, and Chip Hobart was on the air, and um, I knocked on the window. And he was basically broadcasting, much like I waved to you when I walked in Somehow here. Somehow I never heard this story before. Wait, you Just like literally I walked just off walked the elevator in? and I waved to you and you were talking into the microphone. I walked in and I waved to a DJ who gave me a, you know, one finger up in the air saying, you know, wait a minute. Uh, he came out, we talked, and um, another guy that was there with him went on to be a big program director in Minnesota. Um, he too came out and we started making small talk. I told him about the song. I, I, and then they told me about what was going to be their uh, radio, a commercial free summer, and that they were going to have a homegrown record. And he said, play me the song. And then, you know, they liked the song. And the conversation began. And, uh, you know, it was that one in a billion because it started to break not only off of the success of that record, but it started to break nationally. Well, yeah, it was one of those things. I remember the first time I heard it, I was a junior in high school. And I mean, the first time I heard it, I, uh, I, I was frantic because they, they announced what it was. They yep. said this is going to be the, on this homegrown record. Yep. You know, I only remember the first time I heard probably 20 songs in my life when I was a kid. And that I have a really distinct wow. memory of exactly what that was, knowing this is a new voice. You know, it was weird. It wasn't clear you were a hard rock act then either. Because it was just this one, it was just this song. There wasn't a video. You no. just heard a song on the radio. I right. didn't know what you looked like. Gee, what a concept. Imagination. Yeah, yeah, and you just had to did. sort of um, imagine. Then I remember the yep. album came out and getting it. And when did you realize, like, um, oh, I can make it. This is this is starting. Now. I was confident before then. You know, when you're playing in the fast lane and you're in there either watching or opening for these nationally known recording acts, and at a time when my vision of the big time was somebody playing convention hall for 3,000 people, we thought that was the big time. A tour bus was the big time. You know, that that was our idea of how big, big was. I'm just so glad you just said that. Literally, the question I have next to ask you is, how did you define success at that time? See, the fast lane... What was lane, your goal? If you're in high school, the fast lane was the big time. That was bigger than anybody could ever have dreamt that was in high school. When you made that first record and you got on a tour bus, that was the next level of the big time. It never stopped. In fact, this week was another level of the big time you hit yet another rung on the ladder this is i think i've made it 
but you're not quite there. Well, yeah. Yet. So that was the question. Was what did you did you feel? So when you heard that song on the radio, and then you saw the request lines lighting up and all that shit happening, did you feel like, oh, I made it? Or yeah, yeah. In as much as I remember where I was driving over the bridge and you know the big um, Parkway Bridge, it's called the, the something I forgot, which crosses over to, from Woodbridge into Sarahville. And just wanting to drive faster, hoping to get pulled over so I could tell the cop, that's me on the radio. <laughs> I was alone in my car and I was driving. But you thought that was big. And and yet, you know, here you were on a homegrown record, let alone still without a record deal. Yeah, homegrown. It was basically unknown band. Just tell people. Yeah, like, I'm acting like which, everyone knows what that was. Yeah, but two of others, that which one was called Twisted Sister, one was called Zebra, even though, you know, they may not have had more than one or two records. Both got signed. Both of those bands got signed to Atlantic Records. Was tell, tell me what you want was on there, the Zebra. It was out the song. And I know, uh, and I think Under the Blade probably for Twisted. I don't recall. I, but I, they both got signed, which is pretty great ears of the guy who picked the songs if three of the 10 songs on the record got record deals. Yes. Uh, great ears for you for picking you out for sure, though that song was so obvious. Yeah, Twisted and ZZ and um, Zebra were huge local acts. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, fair enough. Twisted right. was a the biggest. You're right. You're right. Local act. I think You're right. it was like, oh, let's. You're absolutely right. Let's do that. But they they figured out you, your thing. So you wanted to just play um, small. You would have been happy. You would have told yourself. Well, sure, because I would have thought that was the big time seeing. Um, you know, whether it was Johnny or Bruce or like I'd said, you, you know, you two or the straight cats or whatever else crosses my mind, they were all playing in the fast lane and then graduated to convention hall. The biggest place you would see the, the current hard rock stars of the day, whether it was Van Halen or Ozzy Osbourne, they were playing convention hall. They, they, you know, on their stop maybe was a Madison square garden, but this was at a time when you'd have to get on the train to go to the garden and stand in line. I hope you got a ticket from Ticketmaster. It was, it wasn't all that easy. No, it was complicated. It was uh, complicated. All right, well, I'm going to jump ahead, even yeah. though we're going to go backwards in, because when you say this, my wife, when I was walking out, I was like, who grew up as a Jersey girl? And I was like, who, you know, um, was a big fan. I was like, well, you had one question. What do you want me to ask John? And she said, she's a great novelist, too, and has been a guest on the podcast. But she said she was there the first night that you played Brendan Byrne with the scaffolding, where you walked okay, across. Okay, on the New Jersey tour. Yeah, and... She said uh, she's always wondered what that moment felt like for you to be walking. Oh, giant She said her whole life, when you put the scaffolding all the way across the thing and you walked across, she has always wondered like what it felt like for you to do that in New Jersey for the first time. Oh, it was amazing because, you know, there had been many, like you said, when did you think you made it to a big time? So I remember really vividly um, praying that we would ever play Brendan Byrne Arena and having the opportunity to play the arena. The Meadowlands was one of the great arenas. Um, and so we, we did that. With the success of Slippery and then New Jersey, we were able to play the stadium. Now, with, this is way crazy, because who got to play the stadium? You know, this was 89. And Billy Squire, I took as the opening act. Oh, that's great. And our neighborhood kids, Skid Row, who were, you know, truly neighborhood kids. Um, so that was the band. And so we created that walkway, which went with the whole tour um today they'd never let us put that over fifty thousand people's heads it was hanging there by shoestrings you know <laughs> and you had to go across it were you wearing bouncing were you, no 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 all of that stuff it's like when i flew across the arena in 86 you held on for dear life there was no safety net you fell you were dead if you were on that that catwalk that went all the way around and it was bouncing and there was no delay towers for the sound so the sound was off you're bouncing up and down and but no 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 you were dead did you allow yourself, though, because you, you have such one of the things that, you know, you and I have a bunch of friends in common, and we, one of the things people say about you, you know, you're so purposeful, single-minded, ambitious in the way that you, when you have a goal, you march toward it. Do you allow yourself to appreciate stuff, or did you, is that something you've learned to do? Mm. Do you have the ability when you're up there above the thing and all of New Jersey is singing along to you? Do you have the ability to go like, okay, this is great. This mm. is like a wonderful thing. Or is it always just like, all right, that, now let's move on. It's a little of both. I've learned to digest the moments, but that's a roller coaster ride. There was a time in my life when there was no way because I was just, I had blinders on. It wasn't as though I didn't appreciate it, but it was, it came at us too fast during Slippery. I was, I was exhausted by it and in, in going into New Jersey. As I got older after... 
crush and in the 2000s right. i definitely learned to appreciate it so when it's my life was a huge hit and oh, you yeah. had that one giant Rebirth hit later again yeah that which was on crush that changed your interstate oh some. yeah again you know because any well in our case we had been written off more than once you know they they, they said in after slippery could they do it again we came back with new jersey but in our to our own to your point and to our fault is that I rushed back in the studio, even though New Jersey had a bunch of hit singles on it, um, it burned us out. And and those who were in power, management agents, lawyers, et cetera, should have, could have said, we have faith in you to do it again, so take a break. And you, you witness this over and over again, whether it's a One Direction or Justin Bieber or, or Guns N' Roses. Any time a band gets to that place of burnout, it's because the machine is running too hard. And and those who are in positions to tell them to breathe oftentimes don't. And it doesn't mean that they're doing it to suck every last drop of blood out of them, but sometimes they're also caught up in the machine. Like if I were managing a kid band today and they had that success, I would tell them, go home. And I would have the confidence in telling I have no reason to keep you out here for another year. And and here's the evidence, you know, and, and there's many bands. Because the machinery is so different, right? Those people were still, if you think about the people managing bands in 84, 85, 87, they grew up when the Beatles were making an album every six months and the Stones every year, but the machinery wasn't this. So they thought that's what you had to do. And then certain bands like Zeppelin would take their time. And they had this other kind of... Long right? The Zeppelin took time after like the third album. Mm -hmm. Well, smart of them. You know, it, it's uh, that's rare because I can just cite too many examples of burnout that happen as a result of of hard work. When uh, so you make the first album, mm -hmm. how did you how did you get that band together? How did you get Richie? How did you get? Well, I had success, right? So Runaways on the radio, and obviously, I'm not going to get you know bitten in those people to to perform with me live that band yeah. yeah and uh and nor did i want to it wasn't the kind of look or sound that i really wanted to have on the stage and so um <clears throat> i knew alex such from a band called phantoms opera and uh they were good they could sing queen better than queen live they were just outstanding um i met him and i'd seen him play cover stuff and i told him what i was doing i asked alex such if there was a opportunity to play original stuff occasionally to help me take advantage of this moment he said sure um and that he knew tico and i said i've seen tico but i'm intimidated to talk <laughs> to tico sure he's, he's just too good too powerful you know i remembered him from a band called lord gunner which was an original band that really couldn't get out of the you know the asbury um that he was now in frankie and the knockouts which was a pop band on rca but we're making records and he was on the road and um Alec was also in an original band called Message that Richie was in, and David Bryan was David Rashbaum at the time. Uh, playing, sure. he, he he had gone back to college and was going to you know just become a good doctor like his mother wanted. Yeah, sure. And uh, and so I got everybody you know one by one to show up, and and we were performing out, and Richie came to see me play at a place called the Fountain Casino. Came backstage, and we hit it off. And I said, well, if we could you know musically get together um you know and, and and write something um maybe you know we'd see what happens so we got together at his house and uh and started to to write it a little bit so we hit it off and 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 that would that made the band so what i thought would be for three months i'd been you know 30 years uh it was just the right combination when you and richie sat down to write what what was it like or what is it normally like do you, do you come in with an idea do you guys just writing process is always just because yeah. i have to do it every day in yeah. my life it always fascinates me yeah I and mean, nobody talk people don't really talk about process that much like how does it do you write all the time do you write only when you're writing for an album do you take notes for yourself and right. then when you show up to write how does it work does it change based on who you're writing with it doesn't change uh no so they're they're interchangeable whether i i co-wrote a song with richie or billy falcon who i'm sure we'll talk about or desmond child or by myself um, it, the process really for me doesn't change. I come in with a, a, a feel and a title. Uh, you start, you know, the title pretty much dictates the feel and we sit and exchange ideas. So that was pretty much it from day one with Richie. Um, we, we had a lot of things musically in common and then he brought other things to the party. 
So that was nice too. So you, you mean to have someone who actually contributes, really contributes. Yeah, but more than yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody I've mentioned really contributes, mind right. you. But I mean, Those are all what, great what I'm saying is that uh, his musical tastes were a little more varied than mine. So he could bring something unique that I wouldn't have uh, considered. That's huge in collaboration. Right. Correct. Uh, some if the two of you were going out there and exposing yourselves to different things yeah. and then sharing those things. Bang. Yeah, that was good. That would he play? So you guys would play each other records sometimes. Yeah, I don't care if it was something as crazy. You know, I, we mentioned Led Zeppelin before. I like I said, I wasn't a Zeppelin fan. He was. You know what I mean? It was could be something as common ground as that, uh, or, or or other things. You know, I remember you know t telling him who Tom Waits was through the years, or or you know, the, I mean, there was a lot of like varied. Approaches. So so that Tom yeah. that. It, were you and at that time? Were you? I know you're. You've uh, educated yourself a great deal sure. since then. Yeah. You're, you Obviously. read now and everything. Sure. But back then, was it by listening to other songwriters really that you came up with the language that you used, or were you reading books too then? Well, you, you no, I wasn't reading the way I did as I got older. No, no, no. Your your vernacular was, you know, that of an eighteen year old and twenty year old kid, and your musical. Uh, tastes were that of the, of the age. No, I, it wasn't that uh, deep. I'm sorry to say, or or honest to say, no. Uh, it was we were product of the times. I learned how to do it by living. And were you good at knowing? So you see, you come in with a title. You usually actually start with a title. I do. Yeah. And you'll have one, and that's how you know you want to write a song. A title will occur to okay, you. Okay. So you ask if if I'm the kind of guy that writes every day. The answer is no. And, and with time and age comes the confidence to know that I'm able to turn on and turn off that faucet. Amazing. Every day is an opportunity to write a song. Sure, I could craft one with you right here, right now. Sure, doesn't mean it's going to be a great one. On the other hand, I'm also aware enough of social events, world events, or personal events that are opportunities to write a song about. And if you turn on the faucet, it can come. And if you choose to not, I'm able to store the the concept, the memory, and keep it for another time. That's amazing. It, it Without writing me. it down for yourself, um, nine out of ten times, I don't, I don't, and I don't need to. But it'll come back to me. I'm never fearful that I've run out of ideas. It's just that some days you don't want to write, even if you have the ability. You say. Oh. It's sunshiny. I want to go out. You know, other days you sit there and write. It's harder to write a happy song than it is to write a miserable song. Because if you're miserable, you want to sit down and just, you know. And and if you come up with that big old up tempo, funny, goofy, you know, you give love a bad name. You'd rather be out at the beach to tell you the truth. But you know, you got to sit down and do it. So as I've gotten older, the process has changed, but the ability uh, has only uh, in, been enriched. Can you leave it behind you too when you're writing? So like. If you're writing a song and it's not quite done, mm. does it? Because that's part of why people don't want to write all the time. Does it? Are you thinking about it all day, yeah. or can you put it behind you and you, just go you back? You could let it sit there, but you know what's the beautiful thing is I love that. If I wake up in the morning and I'm haunted by the lyric, or I love that I know for a fact how many times I've gotten up to had that pen by the side of the bed laid there in my underwear, uh, you know, belly down on the floor next to the bed with like a, you know, a phone or light or something and scribbled it, went, gone back to bed in the morning and went, holy Christ, that actually really was good. You know, oh, that's used great. it or, you know, I've been out on a run and then you come up with the lyric and you think, oh, I got to run faster to get home because I got to remember it. So you're saying it, oh, the cadence over and over and over. So, that's I mean, awesome. it comes cool. Goofy ways in at kooky time. So when that happens, then you will write it, or you'll still just Definitely. put it aside. And no, no, write. no, no, no. If it, if if it's there and it's you know if it falls out, you use it in, in and of that moment. But yeah, then you sit down and you write it. But if if it just you know if it's two lines and it's a title, I'll store the title, um, you know, and come back. And so it. otherwise, do you schedule it? Do you say I'm going to go make an album? I want to make an album. You know, it's been it was five years before the last album or something. Do you say? The last record, let's talk about that one in, in particular. Yeah, House. Um, so we get done with Because We Can, and that is a difficult time for me. So in 2014, I, I am giving the finger to my guitar. I won't even touch it. Why? Because uh, I was just going through such a horrible time um, having Richie, you know, go off the rails right. again and all that stuff. So, and, and pulling that rock as David and Tico and I had to, you know, for another 80 shows and a brand new record that we had to fulfill the commitment uh, on stage. It was exhausting. So in 2014, I 
I was exhausted physically, mentally, couldn't even think of it. And 15, you start processing the, the, the thoughts so that by the end of 15, you can write down on a piece of paper, this house is not for sale. When I, you know, when I saw that picture, I said, there it is. I just saw the picture and the whole Such thing just started song. to fall out. You, know? you feel so committed watching it. Yeah. Listening to it. Yeah. You just feel, you can feel your, your commitment to this idea and telling I, this, so this story. Thank you. Thank you. But also that the photographer allowed me because there was no compromise. I needed that picture <laughs> to tell the story. And I wanted to let the photographer know how much I appreciated it. Cause you know, that's another conversation, but how inter dependent the arts are you know as a screenwriter how much and verify this for me you listen to music or read a book or or look at a piece of art to get the ideas to write the next script yes i you know because it's an opportunity to have you here i don't want to talk about me very much but yeah i think it's in first of all it's an essential part of what we do which, which is because all this stuff gets filtered through our artistic prism right we have to take sure. all this stuff in all the time it's part of what inspires us. You see a picture, I hear, for me, music, like, you know, I write to music right. see, all the time. I have to write to music. And the music I'm writing to absolutely affects the rhythm of whatever scene I'm writing right. and the block of scenes sure. that I'm, I'm writing. So, yes. And, Hugely and, important. And like, uh, I'll say like the episode of our show that people, a lot of people think is the best, which is uh, the 11th episode of uh, last season, was this Tom Petty song, Even the Losers. And I remember... Um, and David and I were writing it, knowing even the losers were going to play throughout the whole episode. See? And I knew how I was going to use it. And then the guys were like, um, well, we're not sure we can get the song. And, uh, so it's, and, I, was, and I remember going, you don't understand. There's yeah. no episode yeah. without the song. It can't be made without the song. And we got, you know, figured it out. Yeah. But so I understand that. So you needed that thing to complete for in your mind. Yeah, in that was. case, that photograph. But I, I so appreciate your verifying my thought process because... Again, I'll get off the track here a little, don't, but don't. very important that people that are listening to this now know this. The arts are interdependent. Whether you're a songwriter or a screenwriter, whether you're a painter or, or you're writing the, the, the great American novel, uh, we're all interdependent. And therefore, when they say, oh, music is free, that genie's out of the bottle. If you take away someone's livelihood and this just becomes a hobby, we're going to start living in a world of reality TV shows that none of us want to know that that's the, our future icons because there's no more support for the songwriter, the screenwriter, the, the artist. And then what, where do we go? The church hires the painter to make them art again. You know, where, what, what era are we going to yeah, Who are the patrons going to be? You know, and, yeah. and it's true because the, the record company will be gone. The movie studio will be gone. Once it's all given away... Um, the the opportunity for history to be told to the next generation will be gone. And we will have people in the White House who are currently running it. We'll have reality stars who are looked at as icons by our kids. And it, and it's a cheap, rotten way out of things. The arts are important. Oh, I agree with every word you said there. Hey, I love Audible. I love audiobooks. It's really easy to uh, talk about this product. In fact, I'm not even going to read the copy. I'm just going to talk. Look, uh, my schedule, I'm slammed all the time. I barely have time to do this podcast. I used to read like three, four books a week uh, on paper. And then for a while, I couldn't anymore because my schedule got so intense. But when I started getting into audiobooks, I realized I could switch seamlessly between like the car and then if I'm walking somewhere and then uh, on my laptop. And uh, I would always have something with me. I would have either a, a nonfiction book, a book that could help me improve my life, uh, a piece of fiction. And um, it really improved the quality of my life. There aren't many, that many products that have the ability to do that. Uh, some of the books that I've listened to in the last while that I think are, if you dig this show uh, or if you dig my the TV show uh, that Dave and I make, I think you would love. Uh, books like The Dip by Seth Godin, which is the single best thing I've ever read um, about when to quit and when not to quit and how to forge through if you decide not to. Uh, or a book like, uh, I don't agree with everything this guy says, but I recently read uh, and listened to The Vanishing American Adult by Ben Sass, Senator. Uh, I disagree with a lot of uh, the policies that Ben Sass likes, but uh, I found it fascinating to read his book and understand his point of view by looking at the way he looks at how children are raised and how, how we talk to kids. Uh, I love uh, The Complacent Class by Tyler Cowen, who's a brilliant economist and, and, and person. And uh, 
Look, Audible is great because it's a great deal too. Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in the store, regardless of price. And if you have unused credits, they roll over to the next month. And I'll tell you, I love seeing that little one, which means I have a credit, or two if I have two of them, and I will uh, immediately take those things down and go through them and be really happy. And the books are yours to keep with Audible. You can go back, re-listen anytime. Even if you cancel your membership, you keep the books. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash moment or text moment to 500-500. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash moment or text moment to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. I'd say the book I've recommended most alongside or other than The Dip by Seth Godin is what I talk about when I talk about running by Haruki Murakami. Murakami is my favorite living novelist, certainly my favorite living novelist under 70, but this is not a novel. This is a book about how he became a runner and a writer. And it is absolutely the gold standard on what it means to find the discipline to chase a pursuit that means the world to you. And uh, this book has changed so many lives. I've seen it happen. Go to Audible, get your account going, uh, go to audible.com slash moment or text moment to 500-500 and order yourself what I Talk About When I Talk About Running by Haruki Murakami, and thank me later. All right, you know, hearing a little bit of your attitude there, which is great, um, because I share it. We're East Coasters who have a certain point of view on certain things. But how do you think you're, like, different or similar to the characters you write about? Because I, 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 I didn't even have to go back and re-listen. I know the record so well. But to me, these are these doomed but defiant people who somehow find a way to hope. Like they're optimistic. They, they know they're yeah. going down in a blaze of glory, though, mm. but they almost se- they kind of celebrate it. You know, uh, yet you haven't been defeated by any, like, you haven't been defeated by anything. No, but I've been lucky. I've been, I've been the, uh, the, the character that we wrote about, the eternal optimist. Um, I've been blessed to have achieved the dream that I was pursuing. So I guess if you live uh, the lyric and you believe in it so much, eventually, you know, will is going to get you across the finish line. But regardless of, of if I were going down in flames like I was just a couple years ago, um, I, I wasn't ready to stop. You know, the only way I would have stopped is to have fallen over. I might have fallen down, but I got up. But- so you knew, so you're, you're, you're feeling um, crushed by what happened with Richie or just fucked up by what happened with sure. Richie. And because this is a guy who was one of your best friends and also... The songs, the two of you wrote together, though you've written amazing songs with our friend Billy Falcon, sure. some of your deepest, most important songs, mm-hmm. and Desmond, who I also mm-hmm. love, and you've written these great yeah. songs, and you've written by yourself. You and Richie together, you know, yep. the the <clears throat> acoustic version of the songs that you guys, did, you know, you two guys together, it's um, that rarest thing in rock and roll. And so I'm sure it was emotionally hard sure. for you. for all, and, and and for David and Tico as well. But yes, there was there was a, you know, Nothing we expected. You're supposed to come to the show. Show up at the show tonight. <laughs> no, that's not out of hand. And obviously, uh, obviously, um, it wasn't like he missed one show and you were like, "Go fuck yourself." Obviously, that was the that was the long end of yeah, um, yeah. a lot of nights of putting him on your back and all that stuff. I mean, everyone understands that. Yeah. Um, I mean, like you say, you had a guy in the wings getting ready to play backup guitar parts. Yeah, we had to have it, you know, for a long time. All but, the time. Yeah, all of that stuff was difficult, but because he was, he's a very talented cat. But, you know, the, the, the point that I was making is that, you know, you may have been beaten down, but not um, giving up. I wasn't giving up. And so you decided you were... So then did you block time and say, I'm going to have writing sessions no, now? No, I laid on the shrink's fucking couch. You know, I mean, I was broken. Uh, between what happened with the band, what happened with my trying to buy the Buffalo Bills, what happened, you know, with... Another with, thing our president fucked up. Yeah, how crazy was that? Um, but, you know, and, and the record deal at the time for about six months was in in question not because they were going to drop us or anything but because the term was up and i wanted my publishing back i wanted my deal and uh so i mean my whole life was upside down and i was beaten up but um wait how could you with something like that a deal you you know you're i mean um unfortunately ever we era we live in you know you were trying to buy the buffalo bills everyone understands you're one of the wealthiest musicians ever like, how could a deal, I, I think because this is key to your character, like the thing that makes you such an unbelievable success is that you could still grind on your on this shit and let it bother you. I understand the Richie thing's emotional and personal. Yeah. 
but is it trick for you to keep yourself fired up to personalize all these things somehow? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm not great at delegating, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I kept the, you know, the the situation with the record deal. I, I'm so proud of having had the same record deal, the same band, the same wife <laughs> for these thirty plus years that I didn't want to leave the label. But what it, I knew that we were on our last record of the deal. And that, you know, they couldn't afford to pay me what they did. And I understood that. that that's the new way of the world. But um, for that six months, you know, we were both playing poker. And, um, you know, that's when we wrote Burning Bridges. And, uh, and, I, and I turned it in in a brown paper bag. And, you know, then fortunately, thank goodness for, for me, um, they, uh, we did a great deal that, that was beneficial. Not, 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 not rich but something that we could both live with for the rest of the that life. made sense to you yeah yeah and i wanted felt, to stay you felt I really like wanted you were to afforded stay. like the respect yeah the respect, you, that, respect that we that deserved and and they got you know the break that they needed economically and you know and and, and all that good stuff that goes and with so it. when you finally got that record made so how did you end up writing it in spurts like what did you do well, to burning write bridges was you know a, you know just the song alone burning bridges is a fuck you to the to the head of the head of the label um and the record company was sick that they you know i turned it in because I said, that is the record folks and uh, they were afraid that the guy would hear it and i said, he won't even listen to it he won't even know he won't even care you know and uh and in the meantime, on a parallel course, we were writing and recording what was to become This House Is Not For Sale. But there was no way, in case it went south, that I was ever going to let them know that those songs were... Really? Oh, sure. And so you were already making that record. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They and were paying for, you were paying for that record yourself to yeah. make it. Yeah, yeah. And just recording it and doing yeah. it. And crazy enough, you know, sort of that kind of the, the, the weird history of it is it was in the studio that I used to sweep the floors and I signed my first deal. So in July of 1983, I signed my record contract in the hallway of the power station. And in 2016, I first signed the, you know, we're out of here papers and then re-signed the new deal awesome. in the same place where we're recording This House Is Not For Sale. That must have made you feel great. It was wildly cool. And you were able to actually notice it and oh, say, yeah. this is great. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and the emotion of, uh, of of singing "This House Is Not For Sale" in that room was 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 a lot. Ama yeah, amazing. Were you? I mean, that song's moving on its own more Thank so, you. I imagine, for that. Yeah. Were you at all nervous about writing a record without Richie? About not having him? I know you've written lots of hits without him, tons of them. But there is that thing with a collaborative, creative partnership. Even the thing when you sing a vocal, or you're you look over at the guy who's your guy. And the little nod from, I mean, those moments. Yeah. And did that concern or had his thing eroded so much by then that you weren't looking for no, it? No, I'll, I'll be brutally honest. Um, I, there was a huge hole on the stage for those 80 plus shows. And then it got even worse when I went to Southeast Asia and I realized that he was not there, nor was even Bobby Bandiera, who was pretend, you know, to back up him. Uh, there was a huge gaping hole. Um, so then Phil had to become his own personality. So I really missed looking over at Richie, the, the magic stage. of yeah. our voices together. But as far, but, but by the time that the writing process and the writing of the record and the recording of the new record, John Shanks had already had to do so much. And, and, you know, I was more than confident in my abilities as a writer and a singer, uh, to worry about it from the studio perspective. And then with all credit, Tico and Dave, God bless them, really stepped up. David got the first opportunity in our 30-plus-year career to truly shine and fill a lot of that hole because, you know, Richie and I were a big force to, to be reckoned with in the studio. You know, to get a word in edgewise with me is hard, let alone between, you know, after me, then Richie. There, there was no chance for poor David. That's why he's never, you know, he's co-written one song in the last 30 years. Um so it's not easy, but David really stepped up on this record. And then Shanks and I, he's really become that, um, that right-hand guy, you know, as a, a, whether it's a collaborator or producer. He's able to fill that gap, too. Right. So then you knew, okay, I can go do this. Yeah. And then you must have been thrilled with the way the record was received. I'm so proud of the album. Some of the best reviews of your career, and yeah, then also... The number one album, all that good stuff. But I'm so excited when I play those songs, and I sing them, and they mean something. And I love you, Gil, love, love a bad name. You know, and we were 25, and it was wonderful. 
but you know, of course, it doesn't have the same kind of meaning as living with the ghosts in this house. It's not for sale. And stuff right. Like no, that. of course, it's a different, different, um, a different man. Just a different man. Yeah. Although you did have songs back then that meant a lot, like "Wanted Dead or Alive" and "Living oh, on a Prayer" sure, and sure, even sure. "Blaze of Glory." Those songs actually it, are about something um, that people really. I mean, "Living on a Prayer." Is born to run for a generation of for a generation. For Thank you. Wow, that's a hell of well, a well. It is true though. If you you know you take the, your hair out of it, I mean, sometimes I think you were damned by how fucking good looking you were as a kid. <laughs> even though Dee Snyder thinks it's the opposite, but uh, famously, but I uh, because if you just look at that song, <laughs> it is one of those. It's one of those songs right. that. Thank you. We all came together. I, I just had a drink with Desmond, who I, I rarely you know I don't get to see as much as I'd like to. And um, and we toasted to that fact that, you know, he, myself, Richie, Bruce Fairburn, who's no longer with producer. us, of course, produced Slippery, Bob Rock, who went on to be a hugely successful producer in his own right. All of us were sort of, you know, on the way up, but certainly not big or famous or, you know, massively. Well, you were coming off of a, you were coming off of a relative disappointment with 1700. Well, seventy eight hundred was a gold record, so I don't. I mean, by whose standards? By your own standards. Uh, gold record wasn't too bad, but when you looked around and 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 the L A based big hair bands were doing better, it was a little frustrating. When you're getting outsold by Warrant, rest in pe- Jamie, rest in peace. But still, um, Janie, yeah, yeah. Did he? Really? Janie Lane. He passed away. Yeah, poor guy. He did. He re. I think he relapsed and died. That's a tragic story. Because he was a really great songwriter pop song he wrote great pop songs i'm not that familiar but i obviously knew who he was as a peer yes but it was tragic it is but those guys selling all those all those think about you know yeah 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 we were definitely flabbergasted because we were lumped into a place that i didn't want to be in and and with a a a musical style that i'd never felt a kinship with you know we were much closer to the east coast jersey band sound um, in spirit, in lyrical spirit, than I ever was to the L.A.-based, you know, hard rock scene. You were closer to Mitch Ryder than you were to Rat. Oh, my God, yes. You know what I mean? Like, uh, in yes. terms of just even the Mitch Ryder's not New York or The East Animals, Coast. you know? Yeah, I Eric Burden, you know, great. And anything like that, the E Street Band or the Jukes or or anything like that, or Seeger or whatever was telling the story. Perfect. The Billy Falcon. <laughs> yeah, Billy Falcon, who you, know, who you write... Yeah. Right. So, so, but how did you make the decision in that moment? Okay. So to- I wanted to. Here's a here's a cute story I could I can talk about these days. At the time, uh, we made that first record, and we didn't put a big glamorous picture on the record cover. And it's taken at, at Columbus Circle on the street at this time of year in the freezing cold, and we downplay all the cute you know boy looks that I guess people thought I had at the time. Um, I wanted to go out and support bands like Brian Adams and the Cars. And Doc McGee said, you're going out with the Scorpions and Kiss. And neither band was I a fan of. I was I became friends with both of those bands, but I was not a fan of neither. And, um, and so he said, the reason is you're going to go out and, and play in front of audiences who are rock and roll fans and not pop fans. And they're going to be more supportive in the long run and we're also going everywhere. So North America, South America, Asia, Europe, we're going because someday America's going to turn its back. And you got to go out there and, and learn how to front you know, this band on that stage. And so uh, we played with Judas Priest. I mean, we were the furthest thing from Judas Priest and 38 Special on the same tour. You know, we'd play with anybody. But I was more comfortable in front of 38 Special than I would have been in front of Judas Priest. But that's what taught you to be good. Of course, it was great then because the worldwide thing is true. You're still, you know, you became a gigantic, important figure there. But here's what's really, to me, um, amazing and uh, about getting outside of who you are or what's expected. Almost nobody at that time in the world would have allowed an outside professional songwriter in to work with them, to collaborate with, especially a young rock band. How did you make the decision that you were going to write with Desmond Okay. And invite that an because accident. that feels like a big deal to me. That you know, and then you guys had magic. The three of you had this incredible magic together. We did, we did. How, so how did that come to be okay. that you wanted After, that during seven eight hundred Fahrenheit? We were we had um, a couple of singles, and and you know they were bubbling on the bottom of the top forty, and we were opening for Rat for a year on the road, and we weren't doing as well as. Rat and Motley Crue and that kind of thing, and we weren't doing as well as the Brian Adams and 
the cars on the pop side of things. But I remember looking at Adams and thinking, he's having hits that are crossing over to another world with Tina Turner and that kind of stuff. So I'd said to Richie, you know what we have to do is we need to write a song for somebody, with somebody, i.e. Adams and Turner. For them to sing. like For to sing together. And so I said, this is what we need to do. And we had played a couple of times like Farm Aid and I got to sing with Willie Nelson and I could see you know, that I was able to strum a guitar and sing with so-and-so here and there regardless of this genre of music. And so we didn't know how to go about it. And that's when we started to learn about publishers and publishing. And Derek Schulman, our A&R guy, had said, well, you got to take the songs and go and get them to other A&R guys. You got to get them to the managers, the artists. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he says, I know this guy who's doing that. So, you know, actively, he could take the songs around. And so we met with Desmond, truthfully, initially to write a song for Loverboy. And we knew that they were open to songs. And so we met with him and wrote a song that ended up on um, a soundtrack called Disorderly, this was the name of the movie, and a song called Edge of a Broken Heart, which yeah, I didn't love the song. It's you know considered by the, the real deep fan base to have been a, a good outtake from Slippery. Uh, and then we stumbled upon You Give Love a Bad Name, and I thought, we should keep this one. <laughs> <laughs> you you we weren't ready to give one. that one to yeah, Tina yeah, Turner we, we, or somebody. We should keep that one. And uh, and and so then a, a, a great collaborative effort was born, and then there was no more talk. So we, Richie and I wrote something with the guitar player from Loverboy for Loverboy. And something Paul Dean. With, Paul Dean, yes. And with Ted Nugent for Ted Nugent. And we started getting songs like that. Um, but... What what happened was, you know, we the one that we wrote for someone else, we kept for ourselves, and it was with Des. And then that's how that collaboration yeah. started yeah, and yeah, went yeah. on. Yeah. And did that make you more open to, you know, later in life you started writing with Billy Falcon, who was somebody who you grew up watching, right? Yeah, yeah. the story with, with Billy Falcon is, this is weird, because you and I know him as long as we do and as intimately as we do, and that guy is, in, in my eyes, still one of the great uh, songwriter, lyricists, storytellers, great performer, uh, his, his, his intimacy with a microphone is something. Yeah, that, go yeah. listen to the song "Power Windows" that John produced yeah. and Billy wrote on on the album "Pretty Blue Pretty World." Pretty Blue World is the name of the album. Amazing, amazing. Listen to that song and listen to a song called "Heaven's yeah. Highest Hill." Yeah, and you'll understand why we both love Billy. I, I met Billy when I was a ten year old kid, and he was super nice to me. And um, great, guy. I've known him uh, since. Yeah, then. and I loved his early, you know, latter. Early '80s, late, 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 late '70s that your dad was involved in, and you know, and so I knew Billy from the bar scene, watching him as a fan. And you knew he was this great lyricist, a very elevated lyricist. I thought so at the time, even though those records, you know, they were what they were in the period in which they came out in, and how difficult for it was for him to shine. And that's a whole other story. But so here he was, nowhere, and um, I had a friend of a friend, and it was a kid that was basically, you know, working at my house. And I said, you know the old guitar players. Whatever happened to that Billy Falcon? And uh, he says, well, the guitar player says he's writing songs again. I said, could you get me some of them? I'd love to hear them, just to hear what the guy was doing. And uh, and he, he got me a cassette, and those songs were on it. And I said, oh, my God, it's just not fair. You have to uh, be heard and seen again. And so you know, I was able to get him a record deal and able to... Get him a manager and get him on the road and do all that Power stuff. Power Windows was on this, just a demo that was like going around. Cassette nobody... tape nobody was interested in. Nowhere, nobody, nothing. And he, we got him a, he was out on the road with what, Stevie Nicks and Don Henley and I got him a record deal with Mercury and, uh, you know, so it got And you Billy got him a video on uh, MTV, God, man. Yeah, Wayne Isham to do videos. He, and He had the whole thing. And then you started yeah. writing with him and he's written a bunch of big, yeah, yeah, so yeah, important yeah. songs for you. Oh yeah, with and for me. Um, you know, absolutely. Billy and I, um, I think that what we've said is we bring out the best in each other. I, you know, I think that it's the, the best um, stuff that I've gotten out of him and he's gotten out of me when we collaborate. And yeah. I think that's true. And what a gift also you gave to a musician who meant something to you. Is a, I mean, in much the same way that Stevie Van Zandt did that for Johnny, mm. you've done it for Billy in that. Um, and I know he's done it for you because oh, yeah. you guys have written these songs. Oh, yeah. But... Um, you know, having songs on your records is funny. The guy who wrote, r r who you co-wrote Runaway with, mm -hmm. I read an interview with him where he, and have you seen that he said nice things about you? He said, uh, he said, John was so good to his word. He put that song on all these different records and I've earned a living from it ever since. And he, you know, he said he never got to write with you again, but that that one 
thing has basically, I think, probably like put his kid through school, like done all this stuff. I'm sure. I mean, that's nice. I mean, yeah, he was a talented guy too in the vein of those kind of billies of the world that had a had a thread but didn't have the the rest of, you know, the ability, uh, the, the opportunity to have the ability to do it. All right, I just have a couple more things I'm gonna let you go mm. um, because I know this is the longest you've ever had to talk in an interview, so <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, but I was thinking about your characters and that one of your characters in your songs would give, at this point, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the, fi- the finger mm. and maybe burn it the fuck down. Mm-hmm. But you have the ability to give the Hall the finger and then they want to take you in. So how, how do you account for that crucial difference? There will be many iterations of the speech. The earliest one said, I don't know if this is a thank you or I fuck you. And that That's line, great. That line is written already. <laughs> That's so awesome. So it depends yes. on how long the speech ultimately is. But, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, you know, but Brian, it, it I, I was mad, okay? I, I was disappointed because we met the prerequisites. I have now seen in print um, what my feelings were about who it was and how it was going down. And I was aware of it, okay? So, yeah. And and then um, in truth, now that it's passed, um, you know, I'm, 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 maybe God wanted it to be now and not eight nine years ago when we were first eligible. But why did it matter to you so much when you know that like the jerks who run it are elitists and out it? Because like you know, I watched Rush. Like for me, Rush not being in there is also just an in, was an insane crime, right? A band that basically proved to all those people they were wrong about them for forty years, mm-hmm. and then finally. They get in. For me, rushing you more. How than... is Dire Straits not in? How yeah? How's Mark not? For... <laughs> you... Really? It makes no sense. Right. But it matters to you because of the company you're you'd be. Keeping I think with? that a part of it was always that. I went to the very first one, thirty whatever years ago, and I remember being there when Amit was still alive, and it was just surreal because, you know, this was the, the you know, Elvis and Big Joe Turner, you know, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard, right? So you're thinking about these are the guys of. Of, of Mount Rushmore, this is heaven, right? And and as the years gone on, you think, given the opportunity after 25 years, will we be eligible? I remember reading somewhere in a paper that the, the guy said, well, we're on the fence. Maybe Bon Jovi will make it uh, if their time comes, you know, maybe they'll at that time. So I never forgot it. And in, in truth, a part of me will be able to say, if you fuckers let me in nine years ago, maybe I wouldn't be here bugging you right now. Maybe I would have you know, retired and, and found something else to do. But you've so what was the motivation for you over this time? I think a part of it was. I was going to ask you where you keep, find motivation. To, to keep saying, fuck you. You know, um, rock and roll was founded on rebellion. It Sure, I think anybody wants to be validated. I mean, that anyone who says that they don't want to be validated is probably a liar. Um, but being in the Songwriters Hall of Fame meant as much or more than anything because, you know, as a, as a writer, everybody wants to be taken seriously. Yes. But this feels really good. I got it. The you fulfillment know, of something. It does. It does. It really does. It'll be in my obituary. I won't be here to read it, but it'll read great. Rich, well, maybe someone will slip you the obit. You know, they write them well. Yours is written oh, yeah. already. Someone can slip you your obit. If, they, if you know you're going. Okay, now have they them have them slip it. you. Yeah. Have them slip <laughs> you the uh, obit. Hey, is... Uh, and Richie's going to play with you? Richie is absolutely being invited, as is uh, Alex Such, um, who we haven't seen in a number of years. But they're both absolutely invited to, to come. That's great to know. All right, a couple last things. You, um, you're a businessman. How do you choose what you're going to be involved with? Like, I know you and your son um, uh, have uh, become what are you, producers of a wine. Yeah. Uh, called Hampton Water Wine, right? Mm-hmm. And how, so how, does, how do you decide... Hey, that's where I'm going to put my energy. Was it that you found something great? You wanted to share it with people? Sometimes you you get misled into a business, i.e. I own a Mexican restaurant with some people in East Hampton. <laughs> that's the most expensive drink I ever had. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I've, I've made bad business decisions over the years, you know, in the wrong place at the right time. But in the case of the, the wine that we're going to make together next year, it's incredible for me. My son came to me with an idea. And, and and I thought about it for half a second. I went, you know what? This is a great idea. And so we started to pursue it on that level. And I was able to um, take his idea to another level. And so we'll see what happens upon its release. But I got a feeling that we've hit on something big here. You know, so we're on to it. And, and to do it with your son. What a great What thing. a treat. This isn't a business venture. This is a, this is a joy. You and your boy who played football at Notre Dame. Yeah. A walk-on. A, a real-life Rudy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you went to all the games, right? No, I went to just a them. few because he didn't play often, but he played. My son is a five foot ten, you know, 190-pound cornerback. 
but he played in a couple of games. Were you there when he played, when uh, he got in? On the second time. Awesome. Uh, the first time I was in China and had to watch it on video, which was still wonderful, but killed me. Because uh, you never know, you know, and a coach puts him in it. So, yes, Jesse played football at Notre Dame. And so the two you were doing this, what, you want to talk about the wine just a little bit? What well, it is? we're making a beautiful rosé. The kid came to me with an idea, and he had, he had had this idea because he read an article in a paper years ago. And uh, and so we took it to a whole nother level, and it's a it's a great French rosé, and it's a, a lifestyle brand. But in long in, in short, just doing something with my son is a joy. This is so much different than any other thing I've ever done before. Well, I think that's a great place to end on. Yeah. Um, and uh, you and your son riding off happily <laughs> to the Hall of Fame. And then it's not a perfect. You get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you start making a wine. I like it's it. It's actually like a great third act or something. Yeah, it'll be fun. You know, we're, we're looking forward to April. Um, I'm going to throw a hell of a party. Uh, a lot of folks are invited. And, and I hope to make the most of the weekend. And when's the next album? Well, I don't know. I'm going to put out a couple of songs uh, because I want to go back on the road in March. And so the songs are finished. The mixes are done. And uh, just a couple of songs to accompany that in the hall and you know, these 30 shows. But then um, I, I'd say that the faucet has been turned on. So there's no rush, but another year. Another but year. you're starting. To, you're going to go out in March and play. Yeah, shows. the plan is to go out and just play thirty shows. Uh, I'm changing that whole model too. No more 150 show tours. Right. Well, you're. Yeah. Why? Why do that? Don't I hope. To. But uh, the last time you toured, I don't think you played New York. I hope that this time. Yeah. Even this summer, I had a bunch of stadiums, and I said no. But I just. Uh, I'm going to spend the summers on the beach. I'm spending the spring in the arenas and right. the summers on the I beach. I like picturing you wearing your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ring <laughs> yeah. with a glass of rosé yeah. on the beach. My feet in the sand. Reading yeah. Lord of the Rings, exactly. finally. <laughs> right. John Bon you can John's on Twitter. You don't tweet that much, but people can find you there. Um, are you on Instagram? Do you do that social media? I, I, they, yes, I am now. I am the last man of the 20th century to join the, the new world. Congratulations. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me. The, the moment bk at gmail.com if you have anything you want to say uh john Bajobi, thanks for being here Ryan, thank Folks, you buddy see you next time <laughs>